We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. He joined the American Civil Liberties Union in the literarily significant year of 1984. And now, three and a half decades later, ACLU Illinois legal director Benjamin Wolf is retiring but not before he talks with us one more time. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this week is Ben Wolf, the outgoing legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union operation based here in Chicago. Benjamin Wolf has been legal director since 2015, though he says he'll stick around until a successor is found. That could take a while. How would you like to follow this guy? As legal director, he helped negotiate the groundbreaking consent decree on police reform for Chicago. He helped reach a final agreement on improving health care in Illinois prisons, among other things. Ben Wolf, welcome back, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. I'm grateful to be here. Um, well, first... Why retire now just when things were really getting to be fun? <laughs> well, I'd say things have always been pretty exciting at the ACLU. We, we fight the battles for people's rights, and, uh, and we will keep fighting them long after I'm uh, sitting on a beach somewhere. Um, so I, I thought it was a good time in terms of my age and life to, to step down as legal director and let somebody else supervise our amazing lawyers. Well, before we talk about some of the amazing things you have and and continue to do in your career, um, how does a lawyer like you slow down? Do you even know how to relax? I'm going to find out. Um, (laughs) It's uh, particularly since since the 2016 election, it's been a time of uh, even more activity than we usually have. So... um, just to go back to something like 40 hours a week would, would feel like a vacation, I think. Mm. But, but, but what are, are you really just going to relax? No, I think I'll stay on. I've been offered the opportunity to stay on as a senior counsel in a part-time role, and I'm hoping to do that for a few years. Uh, I'd like to write an article about consent decrees and other structural injunctions because I've, I've been dealing with those for decades, and I think a lot of the public literature is wrong on on what those are about, and particularly after former Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, put all kinds of restrictions on the Justice Department's decrees. I think somebody needs to take the other side, and it's a good time to do that. Mm. Um, I want to go back to perhaps the, the case you're best known for. It was the federal lawsuit from 1988 about how children were cared for by the Illinois Department of uh, Children and Family Services. Is that the case you would like to be remembered for? I, I'd like to be remembered for that one and for other ones where I represented powerless people, but that certainly is a case that I'm very proud of, although in many ways we were a victim of our own success. We forced the system to get much better in the late 1990s and early 2000s, more than 40,000 children were adopted into safe, stable homes. The 
Rate of re-abuse of children reported to the system went down by more than 50%. Caseloads dropped. Kids reported they were happier. We had more foster homes. Uh, and then because federal courts don't really want to get involved when things are better, we took our foot off the gas and starting with Rod Blagojevich and continuing very much through Bruce Rauner, uh, the Illinois system deteriorated. So now we've had to go back to court again. Hmm. So every success has the as the seeds of future challenges when you're representing powerless people in this state. But are things that you're working with now better at DCFS because of the battles that were fought before? Oh, I think so. I think we, we showed for one thing uh, with the cooperation of a good administration for a while led by Jess McDonald at DCFS, a very good director, that you can make it better. I think some people think foster care is impossible. And that when you start intervening in families that have issues of substance abuse and poverty and sometimes violence, uh, there's almost nothing you can do. And we showed that's not true. You can help people. You can, you can help families stay together and you can help children get on with their lives if they can't stay with their parents. But we keep always hearing the occasional story about people who missed signals and the like. And is that something? I'm, I wonder if any system and any kinds of reforms can keep things like that from happening. I think it's impossible to keep a system in place that never makes a mistake. But I think we can do it much better than we're doing it now and certainly much better than we did it in the late 80s when we sued them the first time. I mean, uh, Illinois has had one of the worst foster care systems in the country, both in the 80s and perhaps now. Uh, and we can do better than that. And most of the time we can make good decisions. If we remember, these are our children. The state has brought them into its custody in many cases in the name of protecting them. And to mistreat them after we do that is just inexcusable. If I've noticed a pattern through your career, it seems you've dealt a lot with human services. Um, is there a particular reason why you were drawn to those cases? It, it is not true that the ACLU and other states always grapples with those issues. But in Illinois, we've had a history under both parties of ignoring human services, of underfunding and neglecting human services. And the money we do appropriate is often spent on the basis of clout and not need. Um, and so... In Illinois, I've had over and over to sue systems like prison health systems and systems serving people with disabilities and foster care systems that mistreat children and adults who need human services. Um, is, are those cases making a, a difference? I think every major case I've participated in has made a measurable difference that helped our clients. Um, uh, we represent people with disabilities who are uh, needlessly warehoused in nursing homes and other institutions, and we've already, just in the early years of our consent decrees, helped many thousands of them get out and live in their own homes and get the services they need, with, need without being institutionalized. Uh, and we're very careful to measure outcomes. We do surveys to make sure people are happy when they're not, and sometimes they're not. We try to fix those problems. We're just in the early stages of consent decrees involving health care in the Illinois prisons that you mentioned and police reform in Chicago. And uh, if we do it right, 
And if the courts cooperate, I expect to see both those systems get quite a bit better in the next few years. Mm -hmm. Litigation doesn't make hard problems easy, but it does give powerless people a seat at the table that they didn't have before and holds public officials accountable. And I think it can make an enormous difference. Um, well, you've got a new governor now, uh, new city administration, but let's look at the state stuff right now. And that is what advice would you give to the current governor about things like DCFS and the prison system? Start with the needs of the people we're talking about, which are often measurable, which experts can often tell you pretty quickly. And then build budgets and systems around those things. Don't, don't start. And I, I think Governor Pritzker's taken the right initial steps. He's got a long way to go, but I think he's, I think he's taken the right initial steps. Don't, don't pick people as other governors have based on who you know or what you read in some newspaper article. Pick people that, that show real leadership and independence and will tell you bad news. Um, and then demand that outcomes be measured. And that people be held accountable because uh, so much of what we do in human services in Illinois is quick fixes and talk. And what we need is action and changing the culture of these agencies and really uh, building on successes when we start to have them. But so much of, it seems, what officials and legislators do when they are confronted with a problem is to spend more money on it. And then when times come, like we're having now, where the state is having financial problems, to say, gosh, we can't do all of that now. Are these, are the kinds of changes, the kinds of reforms, the kinds of maintenance needed in these systems, uh, the kind of thing that is more costly? Are there, or are there things that people can do that don't raise the price tag? If we spend more money up front on the things that work, we can spend less money down the road. For example, our cases uh, on behalf of people who are needlessly institutionalized in nursing homes because there's no community services in Illinois for most of them, people with mental illness and physical disabilities and developmental disabilities. We've already showed, we did a study in one of the cases, uh, that if you help people move out of nursing homes and, and provide fairly aggressive services in the community, you can save the state money. Uh, the foster care system right now, because it lacks the placements and services kids need, often warehouses them in psychiatric hospitals and expensive residential facilities. When we spend the money now for what they need, we will save money over time. And we've done that in the past. We did that in the late 90s as children were adopted out of the system into safe, stable homes we were able in a responsible way in the early 2000s to agree to budget decreases once we had provided the services those children needed. Mm. Um, speaking of children, you also work for changes at what's now called the uh, JTDC, the uh, uh, Cook right. County's Juvenile uh, Temporary Detention Center. Um, what kinds of, what was the problem there and what, uh, what was the solution? I think when you say it's now called that, when you and I grew up, it was called the Audi home. Yes, this is and, true. <laughs> uh, and many people still call it that. I was certainly threatened with that as a somewhat rebellious high school student. Um, uh, the system at, at the juvenile detention center was a disaster when we sued them in 1999. 
many of the workers had been hired through the patronage system. Uh, and although quite a few of them worked hard and tried to do a good job, there were ten, 20 or 30 who abused children, just beat them up. And they created a culture throughout the place that was violent and scary. Uh, it was filthy. When, when we did a study with a sanitation expert, uh, normally you see evidence of mice, like droppings or places they ate something. We saw mice, even with a bunch of experts mm-hmm. walking around making noise. It was so filthy with mice and roaches that they were there even when, when big groups of people went through. Um, a lot of the children were locked in their rooms all day and weren't allowed to go to school because of minor disciplinary infractions and because of understaffing and the horrible patronage system the Stroger administration ran uh, that really had people hired and kept on who, who weren't competent. Uh, and that was a case where we couldn't get any traction uh, from the administration, from the Stroger's father and son. Uh, and so we ended up having to ask the court to appoint a, essentially a receiver, a, an administrator, to run the place. Uh, and then there were measurable, significant changes. He was able to reduce the population and link children to services when they got out. He was able to keep the place clean. He was able to implement a new system where the staff were better trained, better educated, and where the, the place got much safer. There have now been studies. There was a study by uh, University of Chicago uh, Crime Lab that showed that uh, the, the changes in the discipline and oversight and services there reduced recidivism by a significant amount, even in the years we were doing the case. And uh, uh, County Board President Preckwinkle was much more cooperative as we implemented these changes, and we were able to uh, to, to improve things. So that was a case that ended. I sometimes feel like my cases never end because <laughs> the problems are so hard. But that one, we could turn the system back over to the county and the chief judge because at least at the time we did that, two, three years ago, the, the facility had brought itself up to constitutional standards. Yeah, and I so, certainly don't want to uh, sound like I'm endorsing uh, the, uh, the county uh, officials who are involved with this, but uh, I've covered a number of stories at the uh, at the detention center, and they've usually involved major uh, figures in government or politics or literature coming and visiting the uh, the residents there and talking to them. Mm-hmm. And I've seen really some interesting forays into the arts and mm-hmm. literature. Uh, I inter- My only interview of uh, Congressman John Lewis, the legendary uh, civil rights figure, was in that facility. So mm-hmm. they're obviously doing things they weren't doing before. Now, they have real services now. And uh, it was one of my favorite cases to take some of the young lawyers to interview our clients. We always want to go talk to our clients in any of these cases, obviously. So I've interviewed more than 100 detainees at the facility heard about their lives and about the conditions there and, and other things. But invariably, particularly if I went with a, a, a lawyer who had grown up with a lot of education and privilege, they were stunned by how smart the children were, so many of them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, and, and some of them were there for doing things, frankly, that I did in high school. I think the statute of limitations has run, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know possession of marijuana, something, getting into a fight at school, something like that. And, uh, you know, we just treated that group of black and brown youth so differently than we treat other people in our society. And they have so much potential. I'm glad we're doing a better job there now.
You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Benjamin Wolf. He is the legal director of ACLU Illinois, and he is retiring. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring him back to talk about what he's done and also what uh, he looks forward to for for us as well as uh, as well as himself. Um, was could I ask if there was a most surprising case or issue that you handled? Well, I'd say my most heartbreaking case was a case I did in the late 1990s on behalf of uh, the school children in East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, it was a school system at that time that was considered probably the worst in the country. There was a book about dysfunctional school systems by a guy named Jonathan Kozel, and he, he, the first chapter was about East St. Louis. And when we went there to interview community groups and families and parents, we found that some of the children had literally been turned away for kindergarten because they didn't have enough teachers, that there were several schools that had classrooms that were 35, 40 degrees in the wintertime where nobody could concentrate. They had to keep their coats and gloves on just to stay warm. Mm. Uh, some of the schools were filthy. Um, and the, the unbelievable understaffing of teachers, even though with the patronage system down there, what happened was they led the state in the percentage of custodial staff, some of whom worked hard, but many of whom were just patronage workers, and they were last in the state in pupil-teacher ratio. Um, and so we, we filed that case and ended up in the Illinois Supreme Court, first time I argued in the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, and we, our argument was that the state constitutional right to a free education has to mean something more than a building that just says school at the top. It has to mean you get a teacher, you get a, a textbook. They didn't have current textbooks in most of the schools there. You get a classroom that's a reasonable temperature. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I was not able to persuade the Illinois Supreme Court of that. And they said school uh, quality is up to the legislature and the right to a free public education doesn't mean anything unless the state legislature says it does. So is, is that uh, the I lost law that today? That is the current state constitutional law in Illinois. We've been revisiting it along with other people and trying to figure out a way to get the current Illinois Supreme Court to take another look at that issue. But uh, unlike many other states, our state constitutional provision in Article 10 that says you have a right to a free public education, it actually says more than that. It says to a quality education, is not enforceable as a constitutional right for children who are neglected. That suggests the focus has to be on the legislature, doesn't it? Well, it does, and a lot of the problem is funding and the fairness of our funding systems, and litigation has had kind of a mixed success, but not a complete success about those issues. And uh, uh, I think they have made some changes recently that have helped somewhat, but we are a long way from having a decent statewide system of education. Um, since we are talking about current events, uh, I could not... <laughs> avoid uh, talking about what you've been doing for the, since uh, 2016, uh, because a lot of your work has involved basically fighting actions by the uh, administration of President Donald Trump. The ACLU as a national organization has stepped up to the plate to protect the rights of Americans in the face of what Donald Trump is doing. And uh, at least in my lifetime, he is the worst president by far in terms of civil rights and civil liberties. And that's left the state affiliates like our Illinois affiliate um, with two jobs. One is to fight 
help the national office fight the administration. But the other thing is to take on the job that the federal government should have done. So, for example, we got much more involved in the police reform litigation because the Department of Justice wouldn't do it. So we filed a case on behalf of Communities United and the Community Renewal Society and other community groups challenging the police uh, treatment of people of color and people with disabilities. And through that, we were able to get involved in the state attorney general's litigation and help to put the pressure on to have a consent decree. Um, in, in a better administration, the Department of Justice in Washington would have taken the lead, and they were going to in the later years of the Obama administration. But then when Trump came in, they dropped it like a hot potato. Hmm. Um, I think people who listen to this, uh, for those who might think uh, President Trump has been doing a good job and they like the way the economy is going, would say calling him the worst president uh, you know, for civil rights sounds like just a partisan thing. It, it, what, why do you say that? We sue Democrats and Republicans. I, I sued Brad Blagojevich repeatedly. I sued Richie Daly repeatedly. We talked a little bit already about the Stroger administration and county government. I sued them and publicly criticized them. We are nonpartisan. Um, but in my lifetime, which started with the Eisenhower administration in the early 50s, we've never had a president who was this hostile to civil rights and civil liberties. I mean, maybe in history, maybe Woodrow Wilson or Andrew Jackson. I don't want to claim <laughs> I didn't live through that. But, uh, I mean, this president, for example, the ACLU has, has uh, a case that I'm sure you've heard about involving separation of children and families who cross the border. The administration, with the explicit authority of the president, shattered families in order to deter people who had every right to come here and petition for asylum. They might not get it, but they have a right under international law and U.S. law to try. Um, and he said, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to take away your children. We had... The national office handles that case, but they called us. There was a five-year-old in a shelter here that was crying himself to sleep every night because, uh, because he hadn't seen his mother in weeks. I mean, that is a form of torture, and, and I think it's an egregious violation of civil liberties. I think most Americans agree with that. Um, I bring this up because uh, we have had, at least for the last couple of years, uh, we've done a, a, a program here on that issue that is involved uh, your, your uh, executive director from the ACLU Illinois coming on with a lawyer who actually has been affiliated with the, uh, the um, oh, what am I trying to, uh, the, the organization. I just lost my, uh, lost is my train of Somebody who agrees the, with us or disagrees? Somebody who would, under normal circumstances, disagree with you. Uh, well, the, of course, that's probably half of our board. Foundation. It's the, no. Yeah. Oh, the but, alliance, right. But and right. but uh, the thing is, is that, but for the fact that they don't agree on anything politically, we have found that concerns about the president and the Constitution are shared by conservative and what would otherwise be considered liberal or progressive lawyers. Yeah. Uh, that th- this is a constitutional issue. We, we believe in the rule of law, and that's true of conservatives and liberals. And we're not going to get anywhere in this country unless the, the law trumps the wishes of any leader. We are not a dictatorship. And I think, for example, the recent handling of the of the census issues after the Supreme Court ruled 
that this, that the administration had basically lied about the reasons it wanted to add a question about citizenship to the census. The Supreme Court used more tactful language, but that's what it meant, I believe. Uh, and now apparently President Trump thinks he can act like a dictator and just mandate it. Uh, and I think that scares everybody, even people who want the question. That that kind of disrespect for the rule of law is frightening in a democracy. But this brings up another issue, though, because the president believes that if he gets this case, if if it is challenged, and it almost certainly will be, that if it gets in front of the Supreme Court, well, he has more confidence than he might have a couple of justice appointments ago. Yeah. Uh, and that says something else about the kind of power that a president has, doesn't it? I mean, of actually appointing judges and thinking about how they might rule. We, we have, as an organization, the ACLU has some cases in the Supreme Court right now, and we are facing the challenge of five very, very conservative justices, a majority. But the first time the census issue was up there, Justice Roberts wouldn't go for it. And he's, he is someone who I think at times has been faithful to looking at the facts and the record. And the facts were overwhelming, that the administration was lying, and that the reason it wanted the question on the census was because it wanted to suppress the count of uh, people of color and particularly Latino Americans. And, uh, you know, that, that, that doesn't work if we have the rule of law. The census is in the Constitution. We're supposed to count everybody. Uh, and then... You know, we don't let everybody vote if they're not citizens, but then we determine allocation of resources based on who's here. We've always done that. Is the issue of judicial appointments or, or how judges are, are appointed in general something that will ever really have traction in the public eye? Well, I think it has for some very conservative groups for a long time. I think what's happening under Donald Trump and particularly when Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed, um, is that uh, the more progressive elements in the public are starting to wonder if they need to be more involved. And I think they will be. I think uh, my father, who was a, a rabbi, who was an activist and uh, marched with uh, John Lewis and Dr. King and Selma, always used to tell me when I would start this work, don't assume the Supreme Court's on your side. For most of American history, the Supreme Court's been pretty conservative. And the ACLU has uh, worked in other ways. We're working in state legislatures. We're organizing. We're speaking. Um, I think the main thing is for the American people to stand up for themselves, whatever the Supreme Court says. And that is probably be one of the last things we talk about. But yes, is is it is it right to focus just on the courts? People, that's where everybody looks. But yeah, you have to think of other ways, right? Absolutely, and. In a state like Illinois that is that is kind of growing into its own respect for civil rights and civil liberties, which it certainly hasn't always demonstrated, but we are the state of Abraham Lincoln, uh, we were able to pass significant legislation this last year with a lot of allies and, and thoughtful legislators uh, to protect reproductive rights in the face of the challenges we know we're going to face in the Supreme Court. We've done the same with uh, LGBT rights. We've done the same with... Uh, uh, the right to resist racial prejudice, and we're going to keep fighting those fights. I'd like to thank Ben Wolf, retiring legal director of ACLU Illinois, for spending this half hour with us. A production note, this interview was conducted just before President Trump reversed course on the census question.
To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.